this is the wedding that the whole universe has been waiting for. This is the wedding. This is why everybody gets married, even if they have not a clue why they're getting married. This is why. This is the climactic wedding where finally we get to see the bride face to face with her husband. This is it. This is what the whole Bible, all history, every yearning, every ache, every sorrow is resolved by, redeemed by, and perfected by. It's right here in these verses, these five verses. They split into two halves, just like the way John likes to write. They split into two halves, and in each half of this five-verse passage, there are seven claims made, two sevens, just like John. He does that all the time. He's big into sevens. Sevens are the perfected glory of God unfolded and unfurled and applied to the world in perfect order. That's what the sevens are for. So two sevens. What's the movement? What is, what is the movement of this passage? Did you notice as Tom was reading? In the first half, verses 1 and 2, there's a river that streams from the throne of God and it courses out through the people of God. So there's a mighty river of life rushing. And then the second half, verses 3 through 5, the throne of God is in view again, but now there's a river of praise and worship streaming back to God, to the throne from the people of God. First, a river of life streams from Him. Second, a river of praise streams back to Him. The whole point of this passage is inserted right here at the very climactic end of the book of Revelation so John, in pastoral care, can turn to his churches and to all believers who are reading the book of Revelation and under duress and persecution, and he can say, this is what awaits you. This is what's coming for you. This is what you should hope in and plan for. This is more real than the pain and sorrow and difficulty you might be feeling right now, believer. So if you're a believer, take first the application to your life from Revelation 22 that this should be the blessed hope, the glorious vision of the wedding that you place right in front of you and you say, this is what I am going to lean on. This is what I'm going to hope in. This is what I'm going to aim toward. I am going to be present at this wedding of weddings. If you're an unbeliever, this application is similar but very different. If you don't know Christ and you don't feel like this passage of Scripture is more real than the the challenges and struggles you're facing, then come out of your orphanhood. Come out of your exploitation by the enemy. Come out of the way the world traffics you and be saved by your heavenly husband who has come to seek you and save you from being lost. Don't make friends with your true enemies. Leave them. They despise you. They lie to you. They will destroy you. Come to Christ. He alone loves you. And He defines love not as others define love. Oh no. 
When your enemies say to you, love who you love, they mean use who you'll use. Christ says, I laid my life down for you. And I love you. Come to Christ, unbeliever. Come to Christ. And then we must apply this passage by asking, how does it impact our lives? How do we draw it down into our lives? How do we live this vision? How do we live the reality of Revelation 22? We've seen all the pain and the loss. We've seen all the blood and the violence and the gore and the destruction. And we can smell the burning sulfur of the lake of fire. How do we savor and enjoy and relish the beauty of Revelation 22? How does Revelation 22 keep us alive every morning? How does it give us energy to go back to the difficult tasks which seem relentlessly hard and painful? How, how does it keep us faithful in the ministries or the relationships or, or the battles with sin that seem so ongoing and constant and unending? How does, it, how does this passage keep us bounded together when it's so easy for us to press against each other and reject each other? How does it keep us dreaming dreams for the lost around the world when wars rage and when diagnoses press in that are painful and when costs and difficulties and burdens of, of need almost onslaught us here, and yet the call to go to our neighbors and the nations is strong and unfading, and God's power enables what He commands. Revelation 22 has to impact our lives. It has to come in and draw down heaven, as it were, into our lives so that we think the way Revelation 22 teaches us to think, so that our reality is the heavenly reality. Don't fear that people will mock you. Of course they will. Of course they will, because God is filling up heaven with his glory, and God is love, so heaven is a world of love, says Jonathan Edwards. So if you're drawing down heaven, you're drawing down God's love into the world, which is the very thing the world has rejected. How will they but mock us? Yet even their mockery is a badge of honor. For we come in the name of our loving Savior and Lord and husband, King Jesus, to whom we are his bride and by whom we are empowered to bear witness and to call out from the darkness and from the trafficking hovels and corners of shadow lands the lost who are part of his bride whom he will marry. You can just imagine this final wedding of weddings. <laughs> Maybe you can imagine it better than I can. A quiet emerald green ocean on the shore, as far as you can see, white linen pergolas covered with flowers. Banquet tables inside each one. Out in the quiet waters, massive ships covered with flowers. And, and on the ship decks, tables for the banquet. And, and fruit beyond knowing, so wonderful you can't name it, on every table. And then meadows higher up and, and mountain villas higher up, all with tables in the sunshine, decked with food and with fruits beyond knowing. And then a high and lofty archway in which the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Lord Jesus Christ, stands in magnificent glory. And there he stands and he gazes down upon all the guests who, by the way, are the bride as well. 
all the guests present are the bride. Not one is missing. And he smiles at his handiwork for everyone in the vast gathered wedding party beyond the seeing of human eyes is marked with the love and the ownership and the holiness of her husband. And there's an electricity in the air that for the very first time you can rightly use a word that you know now you've always used wrongly. For the very first time you can say I have tasted and I am experiencing in the electricity of this Outdoor wedding experience, vast beyond all measure, for the first time, joy. Let's look at each pair of sevens to maximize our joy in this passage. First, the movement is all the flowing of a river down from the throne of God. Second, all the praise and worship that redounds from the people of God back up to the throne of God. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me. These are the river flowing down. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. You'll notice, won't you, that there are so many. I found 10, and I'm not even going to name them all, but you'll notice them as I go. I won't name them. That's a different sermon. That's a whole different outline. Not preaching that sermon, but I'm going to have it reverberating in your head while I'm preaching this sermon, which is that this is the second Eden. There's all these indications that the first Eden, there was a wedding, Adam and Eve. There was a tree of life, Genesis 2.10. There was fruit, Luscious and delicious to eat beyond naming. There was the person of God. I take it to be the pre-incarnate Christ walking in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve. There was the glory of the presence of the Lord. And yet there was the temptation to doubt God. Did he really say and to, and to awaken pride? Aren't you worth even having the privilege, Eve, of eating all the trees, even the one forbidden? And, and Adam was bypassed, oh, how clever the devil is to get at wives by bypassing husbands. And yet sin entered the world and every ache and every brokenness and every heartache, every grief, every sorrow, every longing, every shame, every darkness, every guilt that was inaugurated when Adam and Eve sinned in the first Eden is now fully redeemed in perfection and complete here in the second Eden. This isn't going back to Eden. This is Eden 2.0. This is the greater Eden. Far better, far sweeter. Even to the point where you might step back and say, if John is intending to show us connections between the second Eden, the marriage of Christ and his bride, and the first Eden, Adam and Eve's first marriage, the first marriage of humanity, then everything in between is God's unfolding of His good plan between the Edens. Even to the point where the sin of the first Eden brought about the drawing near to broken humanity of the Son of God Himself in order that He might go into a garden of sorrow and of tears of blood and of anguish, and of dereliction from the Father 
dereliction meaning a big word for the father turned his face away. Oh, the glory of the gardens in the Bible. Between the Edens, Christ died on the cross and rose again in order that he might stop the degradation. That he might halt the grip of the evil one who was bound at the cross, Matthew 12, 29. And he might bring hope to the land and hope to the bride and hope to all who will come and trust in Christ. Hope finally dawned when Christ was born, lived a righteous life, died and rose again and ascended to the Father's right hand. And all of world history and all of your history and my history unfolds between the Edens. And John, who's writing here, says, God is one. The whole Bible is one. Don't split the Bible up. And the whole world is God's world. And the devil is God's devil. And your life is God's to rule and to reign and to guide as He wills. And so even in your life, even in the pains that you might be struggling with at the moment, you can gaze upon the clues that this Revelation 22 vision is the second and greater Eden echoing the first Eden back in Genesis 2, and you can say, if I'm thinking about that correctly, then it means that my life is not a wasted throwaway. It means that my life matters to God with great weight and importance and significance. It means that God is not wasting my pain, just as He did not waste Christ's pain. Oh, the hope that is rich and available for the taking, like fruit off a banquet table at a wedding for you here. But I'm not preaching that sermon. Here's the one I'm preaching. Seven indicators of the glorious gift of life God gives through this river flowing through the people. Number one, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. This is the river of the water of life. You know that, that if you take a satellite picture and you look high up uh, from 20, 3,000 miles away or however many miles away satellites are, they're not that far away, are they? 7,000 miles away, I think. They look down over the area of where Eden was in, on the world and that you can see four rivers coming together. They're, they're sunken. Some of them are dried up, but you can see them by satellite. There's a river that flows through Eden, the first Eden, and Psalm 46 says in verses 3 and 4, there's a river that makes glad the city of God, and the holy habitation of the Lord is there among His people. That's what's in view here, and, and yet you can remember, can't you, in chapter 12 and, verse, and chapter 16 of Revelation, how the serpent spewed out a river of lies. A river of lies, a muddy river that destroyed everything in its path and caught, wrought so much destruction here. This is a river that comes from the throne of God. It's His sovereign decree. The God and the Lamb together, the Father and the Son, cast forth the river of life. And I take it to be a fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy in verse chapter 47 where Ezekiel said that God from His throne would send forth a river of life. And he even describes in Ezekiel 47 how it rises and rises and the people enjoy waiting in it. People enjoy waiting in the river of life as it flows down the streets of the heavenly city. 
So take your shoes off at this wedding. Everybody's going to have their feet washed. Second, it's bright as crystal. They didn't have crystal in the first century. They didn't know what crystal was. Don't think the thing that your mom put in the curio cabinet and didn't ever use. Don't think that thing. They didn't have that. They had sparkling. The word is sparkling. Bright and sparkling is what it means. It means the glory of the Lord is reflecting off this water. This water is the glory of the Lord. And I agree with so many interpreters who think this is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Not because the Holy Spirit is a substance or a liquid. He's not. He's a person. But this is symbolic terms and vocabulary that I think is meant to signal the very life of the throne of God the Father and the Son comes by the Spirit. John 7, Jesus said that very thing. This is brightest crystal, which is always a signal in the book of Revelation of showing what emanates from the throne of God. Every time brightest crystal shows up in Revelation, it's surrounding the throne of God and intimate to the throne of God. Another reason why many of us think this is a symbol of the person of the Holy Spirit. Three, flowing from the throne, sent out by God and from the Lamb. This is the Spirit, as I take it, being sent out to fully bear the fruits among His people. No hindrance, no grieving, no disobedience, no disconnection from the Holy Spirit, but in fact, dwelling within Him, in fact, waiting with Him. Can you imagine just at the wedding, setting your feet inside the emerald waters and waiting along the beach, and there's no dangerous rays from the sun to harm you. There's nothing in the water that can harm you. There's no microbials or bacteria to harm you. You can only enjoy with great and ever-increasing joy the marriage supper of the Lamb. John 15, 26, Jesus said, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send you to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness to me. I take it that this is a fulfillment of the Spirit, the Son, and the Father dwelling with their people unendingly and with joy. Fourth, it's in the midst of the street. This is again triggering this Ezekiel prophecy. The water, as it were, flows down the middle of the street, and that would have been a a shocking scene. In fact, in our day, it's a scene of destruction. But here in the heavenly city, it's a scene of blessing and joy. And if you read the Ezekiel passage, you can see that it's children and people enjoying playing in the water. Heaven is filled with the glory of the Lord such that we are like children playing in the water and our feet being constantly washed. Fifth, the nourishing of the tree of life. The gospel, I take that reference to the tree. There is a tree of life in Genesis 2, you remember. Here, the tree of life I take to be a reference to the gospel. It straddles the river. That's the picture given in Greek. It's like a canopy over the river. So it's beautiful and it's life-giving. And then, and then it goes on to say that it bears ceaseless fruit. We're not even told the fruit specifically, but we're told they are 12, which doesn't signal near necessarily that there are seasons in heaven. The sun is no more, and we're not interested in winter, for goodness sake. But I think the 12 means the completion of the church enjoys all the fruits that God has woven into her. And so there's this celebration of beauty and glory and deliciousness and joy and banquet feasting in heaven beyond all imagination, yours and mine. And, and ultimately, it's not just 
Jews that are there, but it's true Jews by faith because all the nations are coming. Just as God said to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, I will make you the father of many nations. So also, this is fulfilled here, all the nations are coming. All the nations are gathering. All the nations are, are receiving and eating and trusting in and being beautified by Christ. There are people from every tribe, tongue, and people and language together. And so there is this glorious anti-hatred, anti-discrimination, anti-affliction, oppression, condemnation, shame, and guilt that rises up inside the people of God. You know that we have the gospel, and the gospel is the only solvable answer for every ethnic strife on the planet. You know that, right? There's no other answer than Christ. Why do we act as if there's every other possible answer but Christ? How grateful we are as a church to be able to send off a short-term missions trip today, and we'll commission them here shortly. How grateful we are to have flags on the wall outside that wall over there. How grateful we are to be praying and thinking about places around the world where the gospel needs to reach and go in power. But, but we should have heavenly vision on these nations have all gathered together and they are all gathered around the throne in perfect harmony and in perfect peace and they are worshiping the Lord together. So now we shift. The river has flown from, flowed down from the throne to us and we've enjoyed it in its fullness. It's healed the nations and brought them all and united worship together. And so that's what flows back to the throne. Look at verses 3 through 5. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no lamp or light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. They will reign forever and ever. Here in the Eden of a greater nature, the very curse that began with the first Eden is perfectly gone. Christ came to the garden and He suffered, Galatians 3 says, bearing the curse on the tree. tree of life, tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but a curse Jesus suffered on the tree. And now here, there's a tree of life again, and it's huge. Its it's roots go on either side of the streets, and it covers the streets with its canopy, and it produces fruit for the healing of the nations, leaves for the healing of the nations. The curse has thoroughly been conquered, removed, lifted, absorbed, propitiated, taken upon Himself by the Lord Jesus Christ fully and completely. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, says Paul to the Galatians, by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Galatians 3, 13 through 14. The Lamb has conquered it. That's why the Lamb is on the throne with the Father. This is the second observation from the 
worship coming toward the Lamb. We worship the Lamb because the curse has been lifted and Christ, through your death and resurrection, you achieved it. May all praise and honor and glory redound to you. What happier task do we have then than to go proclaim the saving joy to the world far as the curse is found in Isaac Watts' terms. Third, there's a freedom for all the servants to worship Him. Notice how it's the servants, those who have been cleansed, those who have been washed, those who have been forgiven of their sins, now are servants. The indication to the world that our gospel is true is that we're servants of the Most High God. The indication to ourselves and to the Lord that the evidence of genuine conversion has occurred is that we've been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb and we are now His servants who worship Him, who want to worship Him with all that we are. We offer ceaseless praise flowing back to the throne of God. And in heaven, it's ever deepening and intensifying in its power and in its beauty. We will sing, we will praise, we will create, we will exclaim, we will rejoice. And if you ever think that sounds boring because heaven is going to be unending worship, ask yourself, when you're looking at a multi-hued sunset of the most glorious nature that Bob Ross can't even begin to imitate, does your joy in that vision go away faster than the sunsets? No. It always sets way too fast, doesn't it? Heaven, the sun doesn't set. The glory doesn't stop. The beauty doesn't quit. <laughs> the wonder of the glory of God is layered and extended to our ever-increasing capacity to enjoy it. Vista after vista after vista after vista forever. He is infinite. We are finite. Our capacity to enjoy His infinite glories increases. His infinity is constantly unfolded before us. Fourth, free to face Him face to face without shame, without fear, and without guilt. We come before Him unmasked, unafraid, uncondemned, and unimpeded by any barrier or distance. We come into His presence and stand as close to His face as a bride does to her soon-to-be husband as they make their vows to each other. We come in person and we come in perfection. You remember how Jesus taught worship to the woman at the well? He was not courting her. He was not seeking a wife. He was seeking a member of His bride. Do you feel the difference? Do you hear the difference? He wasn't seeking to be her next husband after the several long line that she already had. That was not what Jesus' aim was. Not at all. He was, in fact, seeking to be her heavenly husband for eternity. He was offering her water. There's so many overlaps between Revelation 22 and the woman at the well, it blew my mind. I thought, okay, sermon number three on this passage. I'm not going to live long enough to probably get to that, but you, you think how many ways the woman at the well story in John 4 overlaps Revelation 22. There's water, life-giving water. There's Jesus talking to a woman who has been dishonored and dishonored herself with several husbands. 
She's not a Jew. She's a Samaritan. The nations are coming. (laughs) How many ways does that passage connect here? He lifts the curse by coming midday when she's there, and he talks not just to a woman, but to a Samaritan woman, which would have thought to have been an act of cursedness. He boldly and generously offers himself to her and his living water, and he teaches her about worship, and he says, I'm looking, the Father is looking for those who will worship in spirit and truth. Here in Revelation 22, the climax of our worship is to worship in spirit in person, and in perfection. We not only worship in spirit and in truth, we worship in person and perfection. Why do I say in person and perfection? We worship in person because you can look face to face at the Lord Jesus Christ and say, I love you, I trust you, I worship you, and say it to him face to face. But perfection as well. Because if he and I were to meet face to face right now, the heat and the glory and the intensity of his holiness would incinerate me. You and I will be so transformed in holiness that we will be able to come into his presence face to face and not be incinerated. No shame, no guilt, no fear, no condemnation, no secrets, no shadows, no past, only an infinite present. Yes, we worship in spirit and truth. Revelation 22, we will worship in person and in perfection. Fifth, we will each be priests among our high priests as we worship the Lord. Why do I say that? Writing on the forehead was an Old Testament way of saying this is a priest to our God. The Old Testament priest would wear the name of God as they would go into the presence of God. He would look upon the priest and see his name on their forehead as it were and he would be pleased with all that they were reflecting of himself. So also, we will go with the name of Jesus on our foreheads and we will say we come and we are in the, this glorious heaven and we've come to this wedding because we've been invited by the groom The groom chose us. We are his bride. We come into the presence and the Father sees us and he receives our worship just as he received the worship of the priest. Our great high priest worships as our elder brother and we will worship with him forever and ever. He is the lamb. No sacrifice need be made nor dare be made beyond what he already made and we simply offer our lives in joy to the Lord forever and ever. No night, no lamp, no sun. Christ's glory beams to fill all in all. That's the sixth observation. And, and I, I turn here to a friend, a, a man that I have uh, had many conversations with. We used to work together in different ministries when I was a student at Southern Seminary. I've read many of his books. I've been helped by many of his sermons. Here's just a paragraph that captures this beautiful idea of heaven having no la- night, nor lamp, nor sun. This is Sam Storms. Moses saw the back or hindquarters of God, if you will. This resulted in a glowing brilliance on his face that terrified the people from which they turned away. The dazzling brilliance that transformed Moses' face was too much for them to bear, yet this came from his beholding the back of God, not his face. Our eternal destiny is to see him face to face. What will it be for us to bask in the radiant glory and refulgent beauty of his divine countenance? And finally, seven. It says we will reign with Christ forever and ever. This is what Daniel 7 said would happen. The saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Jesus, Paul, and John all say the same thing. 
Romans 5.17, For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace, that's us, and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Every longing that you have is fulfilled here in this passage. Every ache and sorrow that you feel is unjust and broken. Every betrayal that hasn't been set right. Every sin that was done against you but the sinner took their guilt to the grave. Every wrong that you can see in the world that enrages and horrifies you. Every injustice that you can feel. Every slight that seems so painful at the time and you're frustrated with yourself that it hurts so much. Every wrong on this world, in this world, owing from and stemming from the sin of the first Eden has been paid for and set to right by the death and resurrection of Christ. And so he is anticipating the full number of the bride to come together into the heavenly wedding ceremony. And he will rejoice over how every single one he has died for is present. The security, the power, the glory is meant to tell every believer, hope in Christ. If you can believe in Christ, believe in Christ. Do not presume that He is only a piece of fruit there for the taking you can choose or step away. You're not the center of the universe. He is. There is a too late with God. We'll hear about that in the coming Sundays when we hear of Christ's coming. Believer, take hope in this vision. It is more real than anything you can experience in your life now. Set your hope on this and think of it often. Take heart. No pain God permits in your life is wasted. From Eden to Eden, His plan unfolds perfectly. Unbeliever, have you ever thought of yourself unworthy of such a joy as this? Does this seem too big, too broad, too wonderful for you? You are not worthy of it, nor are we worthy of it. That's the wonder of it. By His grace alone we come to receive Him and all He is for us forever. Unbeliever, receive Christ. Draw this heavenly vision into your life by praying these two prayers. First, God How can I wade deeply in the river that flows from your throne? Wash me, wash my feet. How can I wade deeply in the river that flows from your throne? And second, how can I offer my life back to you as worship, more holy, more fully to you? Fill me up to all the fullness of God that I might worship you with everything I say, feel, and do. I've been praying for a long time that the landing would have the privilege of engaging in this international, sending a team to the nations kind of vision, and I'm so thankful that it's come to pass now. There's a team gathered that's going to Alaska to join with a church called Awaken, and in this union with this church, this this gospel-proclaiming church in Anchorage, Alaska, our team will help participate in a vacation Bible school, and I believe also offer a marriage seminar. And of course, there'll be interactions and prayers and meals and conversations and worship services of all sorts and kinds and maybe a a fast friendship formed. Anchorage, Alaska, like many places on the earth, has churches and it has the witness of the gospel, but it also has a tremendously dark grip of unbelief on that city and on that entire region. Not maybe terribly unlike people would describe Duluth, Minnesota. 
the need is great, the opportunity is great, the gospel is great, and our Savior is great. So I'm going to invite us as a church to commission our first short-term missions team today. Short-term missionaries going to Alaska, come join us up front here. Elders, would you also come so we can lay a hand upon their shoulder and pray for them? Come on up, beautifully green-shirted ones. So cool. Conrad, could I ask you to answer a few questions on behalf of the team before we pray? What would you say uh, your t- the team has learned is learning so far about God as you've prepared to go? And then second, uh, 